Thank you, Bill. <clears throat> well, good morning, church. It's good to see all you here. For those of you that are visiting, my name is Pastor Ray Cosley, and I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Living Way. And I'm just so glad that you're here, and we pray that you would indeed encounter the living Christ in a significant and in a special way. Well, we have, um, let's actually do over values first. We can get those values up. All right, I'm going to have you guys stand with me. Uh, I'll read the value, and then we will read the statement together in one voice. <clears throat> a gospel-centered life. The gospel is the basis of our intimacy with God and our power for true transformation. Gospel-revealing community. By our love that transcends all natural bonds, all people will know that we are Christ's disciples. Unapologetic proclamation of Scripture. We stand on the solid rock of Scripture without compromise, for all other ground is sinking sand. Church as family. We as followers of Jesus pursue his vision of family through our deep and mutual commitment, interdependence, and affection. And lastly, a missional community. We join God's mission to make disciples by demonstrating tangibly the power of the gospel in our city and in the world. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are going to continue our series entitled Kingdom Come. And it's a study on eschatology, a study of the end times. And I'm going to be preaching a certain section as we're moving along through the end times calendar. And then next week, actually, we're going to pause from the series to just focus on Thanksgiving. And so Pastor James is going to come and just give a message about harvest and all the wonders that we have in the harvest that we have in Jesus. So if you have friends, family, we really encourage you just to invite them out next week for a good time of just remembering how much we have to be thankful for. Amen? And now this message, uh, as I kind of gave proviso last time, um, it's going to be more, I would say, informational than inspirational, okay? I'm going to be doing more teaching and just kind of going through what it looks like for us to continue through God's end-time eschatology. So if you've got to take notes, if you've got to take a shot of Red Bull or whatever you've got to do, uh, let's go. So if you have your Bibles, if you could please turn them to the three passages that we'll be going through. First Thessalonians chapter 5, Daniel chapter 9. And then Revelation chapter 5 is where we'll begin. So with that, let me go before God as we pray. All praise. All praise. Not just a few, not even many, but all praise belongs to you. And so God... Will you please grant us the grace wherever we are to step into that reality? God, we praise you. No matter where we find ourselves right now, we choose to praise you. Because we have so much that is praiseworthy, that is given to us in you. And so God, grant us the grace to praise you over the preaching of your word. God, will you please come? Let your word land on good soil. Remove, God, any areas of distraction that the enemy may want to try to keep people from hearing your word. We pray against every evil force that is arrayed against the call and cause of Jesus Christ, and we command you right now to leave. You have no place here. 
based on the authority that belongs to us in the heavens, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And God, we pray that you would send your angels to minister and encourage, and that your Holy Spirit, as he is resident, that we would be resident with the Holy Spirit as he is already here. So God, help me, the weak vessel that I am, and take, Lord God, this jar of clay and demonstrate your surpassing power, I pray. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Well, where we are presently on our journey through the end times is our first priest message just talking about the fact that Jesus is coming soon. And then after that, we talked about how soon. It talked about some of the sign of the times. And then Pastor James came and he brought the next stage, which is the rapture. That being God is going to take his church and remove us before he ultimately brings about wrath and tribulation to the world. And then my father-in-law came last week and just reinforced the case for the rapture. And so now we find ourselves at the next stage of that calendar of end times. And the question that I have for us is, how will God respond to the brokenness of this world? Having assuaged the angst of the Thessalonians concerning their loved ones who had died, as Pastor James preached a couple weeks ago, he assured them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that they would not endure the wrath of God. And in fact, they would be raptured as they would meet their loved ones in the air with Jesus. Well, then Paul moves from the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to another matter of concern for the Thessalonians. And that's in chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, everybody say day of the Lord, will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The next event after the rapture of the church on God's end time calendar is what Paul says here, the day of the Lord. Or in other words, the day of God's wrath. Another word for that is the tribulation. Now here, just to help you see the chart that I've been working with, and I got a trusty pointer. Can y'all see that work? All right, I came equipped this time, I think so. <laughs> is right here we have the church age. And that's where we find ourselves now. And then you have the rapture there. And then in between here where Paul says there's peace and safety, that's where I think he's talking about. Is once the rapture happens, there's going to be a sense of peace and safety. And that's where even the Antichrist may then create a treaty with Israel. And so there's going to be this sense of peace in the Middle East. I mean, imagine how, ins how significant it will be to have that area of the world full of treaty, full of peace. And so people are probably going to be seeing life like, man, we're on the up and up. Things are great. Things are good. Those, those Christian people, you know, cast that was always making us feel like we was going to go to hell because we didn't come to Jesus and, and all that, they're gone. Man, the world is looking kind of nice right now. And then right after that, what you see there is then tribulation. Now, there are a lot of events that are going to be going on during the time of the tribulation. There's going to be the Antichrist and all of his movement. There's going to be the 144,000 
There's going to be two witnesses. There's going to be the false prophet. There's going to be Armageddon. Now, what I want to do is, as you can see here on the chart, that tribulation says seven years. All those things that I just described are going to happen in those seven years. Now, what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to talk about all those things right now, although you guys know that I could, and I'd have you up here for like five hours and wouldn't care. But what I'm going to focus on, what I'm going to focus our attention on is one event that will be at the center stage of the duration of the tribulation. I'm going to focus on one event, namely the unfolding of the wrath of God, the day of the Lord. This is not a subject that will garner a bunch of amens. I don't know if I'm going to get a lot of hallelujahs. And I actually thought to try to take a lot of time to help you see why God is just in bringing wrath. But if you just sit and pause, if you just allow for yourself to just be honest with who you are and what the world is around us today, it's not hard for us to see that the motivations of our hearts and our actions are sinful. And if you still can't see just how deserving you are of wrath or the world is of wrath, then I want you to look at the cross. God did not slaughter, and I use that word intentionally, God did not slaughter his precious, spotless son because everybody is good. Because you're a good person. And for those under the sound of my voice who have not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus as their savior, treasure, then his wrath that I'm going to talk about today is upon you. So I have three questions. One, for today, how long will the day of the Lord be? How long will the tribulation of wrath be? Secondarily, what will that day be like? What will that day actually be like when the wrath of God comes on the world? And then lastly, how are we to respond to that coming day? So now let us see how long the, the day of the Lord will be. And so now looking at our chart... What we see on that chart in the tribulation is we have seven years. Now, obviously, I already said seven years, so why am I asking the question, how long will it be? Because I want you to see from Scripture where we get that from, right? We're not just throwing something out there, but we stand on the solid rock of Scripture without compromise. Well, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, Jesus is talking about the tribulation, and I talked about this a few weeks ago. So the subject is tribulation, if you go through the whole passage of the Olivet Discourse. And in verse 15, halfway through his discussion about the tribulation, he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation, everybody say abomination of desolation, spoken by the prophet Daniel, everybody say Daniel, when you see him standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So in verse 15, first, Jesus gives us a timestamp. When you see the abomination, then he gives us a reference. Go to the prophet Daniel. So, let's go to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. So, Jesus tells us to go to Daniel to figure out the whole timing of this tribulation as he's talking about. So, we're going to go to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 24. And right now, Israel is under Babylonian captivity. And the temple and Jerusalem are in total ruins. 
And so these verses from 24 to 27 provide a sort of clock, if you will, that gives an idea for Israel of when their restitution, where their redemption, where their salvation will come, when the Messiah will ultimately save them, and also when the end of the age will come. That's the topic here. So we see in verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin. So that gives us the fact that this is talking about the end of the age. And to atone for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal both vision and profit and to anoint a holy place. So clearly, the, 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 the Daniel is being revealed here that this is talking about the end of the age. And how we're gonna ultimately going to get there. And at the very beginning of verse 24, he says the timetable is 70 weeks. Now, in verse 24, almost all commentators agree that the 70 weeks is actually talking about 77s, or should I say 70 weeks of years, or should I say each day in the week would represent one year. So each week is seven years. So that will be 70 times seven. So the number then is 490 years. And I have a chart to kind of show you. And so here you see Daniel talks about the 70 weeks. We have 69 here, and then we have one there. Now, look at verse 25. Verse 25, he says, Know therefore and understand that from going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, everybody see anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and molt, but in a troubled time. So the verse, the first part of verse 25 is talking about the 432 years that you see under there, which is the 64 weeks. So first, now, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, he's talking about the seven weeks. So he says at the very beginning of verse 25, the first seven of the sevens, which is 49 years. Then they're going to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, right now, Israel has no Jerusalem. They're in Babylonian captivity. It's been totally destroyed. The temple is gone. Jerusalem is gone. So the very first part of verse 25 is saying from the time where there is the reestablishment or the decree to reestablish Jerusalem, it'll be 49 years. And the crazy part is that's exactly what happened. You see right here where it says the decree of Artaxerxes? When they released Israel from Babylonian captivity, actually they were under Persia at that time. Once they got released, Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, declared to rebuild Jerusalem. And guess how long it took? 49 years. That's crazy. So from then to there, already the prophecy is in line. And then the second part of verse 25 says, and I'll read it again, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So now the seven weeks are up. So now he says 62 weeks, which I have right here. That's 434 years. Well, guess what happened 434 years? 
that extended all the way from the rebuilding of Jerusalem to the very coming of Christ. And the text says, an anointed one would come. So verse 25 gives us the next 62 weeks from the time of the Babylonian captivity all the way through. So now we have 69 weeks already done. Right here, the temple was, uh, Jerusalem was rebuilt. Then after it was rebuilt, we have 62 weeks, and it was during a troubled time. Namely, Israel was under Roman rule. And that's when Jesus came on the scene. So now we have one more week that's still left. We have the 69. So now look at verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. What do you think that's talking about? Who's the anointed one? The Messiah. He was what? Cut off, which is what? Crucified. And shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come. Now, who's the people of the prince? Israel. Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The sanctuary was destroyed in A.D. 70. So after Jesus died, rose, A.D. 70 came, and it was destroyed. And then it says, and the end shall be war, desolations are decreed. So now up to this point, Daniel has basically prophesied when the Messiah, or, or the angel has come and prophesied for to Daniel when the Messiah will come. Jerusalem will be rebuilt in 49 years after their release from captivity. Then after that 49, there will be another 434 years. Then the Messiah will come. He will be cut off. And then A.D. 70, all of a sudden, Jerusalem will be sacked and destroyed along with the temple. And so now how many weeks are left? One. One week is left. And look how verse 27 describes the last week, which is seven years. Remember, the weeks are seven-year periods. And this is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24, 15. And he shall make a strong covenant. Now, who do you think he is? With many for one week. And for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of, there's that word, abominations, shall come one who makes desolate, there's that other word, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Who is he talking about there? The Antichrist, the abomination of desolation. And how long does he say that the Antichrist will be on the scene? Seven years, that last week. And then it says he's going to come on the scene halfway through the week. See, that in verse 27. And that's where you have the halfway point. So, to review, we have here 69 weeks. Decree of Artaxerxes after Israel was released from captivity. Bam, it was prophesied. 49 years, Jerusalem would be built, and it got rebuilt. Then all of a sudden, boom, six, two weeks from the time it was rebuilt, they said that a Messiah is going to come and, and deliver you guys. Sure enough, the Messiah came, the triumph, triumphal entry in 32 AD. And then after that, it was decreed that Israel would fall. It would be sacked AD 70, which is not on here. And then finally, we have that last week, the Antichrist agreement, which is verse 27. So, how long will the tribulation period be? We have one more week left. And in between that time is, you see, the church age. What's phenomenal to me as I was studying this and look at it is this. When God says something, is so. <laughs> when God says something, is so. When God says something, is so over your life. 
you might find yourself in a place where you're doubting the very things that God has declared here in his word. Let this be a testimony to the reality that when God says it, it is so. If he says he's for you, he's for you. If he says he's got your back, he's got your back. If he says that you're more than a conqueror, you're more than a conqueror. If he says that all things will work together, then that is indeed so. When God declares it, it is so. Now here comes Jesus then telling us also what will be so. The Antichrist will sign a seven-year peace treaty at the very beginning of the tribulation. And then halfway through will be the abomination of desolations. Now, we see this confirmed in Daniel chapter 7. This is not the only place. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High. This is talking about the Antichrist. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. That's right when the start of the great tribulation happens. All of a sudden, the Antichrist is going to break the, uh, the peace treaty, and all hell is going to break loose. Revelation chapter 13 uses the same numbers, but with different types of, 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 of um, designations or seasons. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. The beast is the Antichrist. And it was allowed to exercise authority for how many months, everyone? 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Now, how long is 42 months? Three and a half years. You can look at Revelation chapter 21 or chapter 11, and I think they use the number 1,260 days. What's 1,260 days? 42 months. What's 42 months? Three and a half years. What's times, times, and half time? Three and a half years. The word of God is off the chain. How long will the day of the Lord be? Seven years. Seven years. Now the question is, is what will those seven years be like? I want to let God's word paint the picture of the wrath of God in living color. In the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke and in Mark, Jesus gives an outline of what this day will be like. But the book of Revelation gives the color of this day. So what I want to do is I want to paint it for you. Now, the wrath of God is described in the book of Revelation as seals, trumpets, and bowls. And the span of that entire time between the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, they will span all of the seven years. And the way you have it is you have seven seals. And if you see the way I'm doing this, and scholars and commentators, they have different views on how these seals will be uh, unfolded. This is what I've come to in my study and as I've looked at some of the commentators. Some believe that there's going to be all peace for the first three and a half years and then all of the seals and trumpets and bowls. I just don't see that in the text. And I'll show you why. But here's what I'm seeing. At the very beginning of the tribulation, you have the seals. One, two, three, four, five, six. And then you have seven and it overlaps with the trumpets. Why? Because we're going to see in the text that after the six seals are broken, the seventh one, the trumpets actually come out of the seventh seal. And then the six trumpets are blown, and then the bowls come out of the seventh trumpet. And then they go all the way down until finally the last and final bowl. So it's almost like a telescopic kind of unveiling of the wrath of God. 
It starts here, and then it goes like this, and then it goes like this, and then it goes like this. Okay? And, you will, and I'll try to point that out as we go through the text. What's also interesting about this is that each of these seals, trumpets, they have a pattern. They first are coupled in four threes. So you'll see the first four are very similar, and then the last three are very different. And then you get to the trumpets, the first four are very similar, and then the last three are very different. And then you kind of move on in that kind of a pattern, at least for the seals and the trumpets. And in each series, now by a series I mean this series, this is one series, this is two series, this is, this is three series. In every single series, the intensity ramps up. It gets more intense and more intense as it goes along. You'll see in the first seals, only a fourth of the world is impacted. And then the next series in the trumpets, a third is impacted. And then in the seven bowls, you'll hear the description, the entire world. So, the types of judgments that we're going to see, and I'll just give you a preview. The types that go through all of those judgments, you're going to see human judgments, you're going to see cosmic judgments, you're going to see demonic judgments, and then what I call theophanic judgments, or judgments that come theos from God himself. Yet all of them are orchestrated by God. And to give you a big picture of Revelation, sometimes Revelation can be a little confusing, especially when it comes to the wrath of God, the seals, trumpets, and bowls. It starts in chapter 6, and the wrath of God ends in chapter 16. And the way that it flows is, first you have the seals, and then all of a sudden, the writer drops an interlude, almost to kind of give us a breath, because it's so intense and it's so hard. So you have all chapter 6 seals, and then you have an interjection of an interlude that either brings us down on earth to kind of see what's happening in the midst of all of the judgments, or it takes us up into heaven to look down to see what's happening with all of the judgments, or just why these events are happening. So it gives us an interlude, and then all of a sudden, the trumpets jump in, do, 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 and then, whew, let's pause, because that was heavy, and then there's more of a vignette of what's going on, and then, boom, bowls. And so it's just this seals interlude, trumpets interlude. Bowls interlude. Okay, so it's, it's, it makes it maybe a lot easier to kind of see. Because sometimes I was wondering, like, all of a sudden y'all threw in 144,000. Like, what the heck? Does this have to do with anything? So really what it is, it's just a running theme of the wrath of God being revealed. And then just gives us pause. Right? You guys with me? Okay. So now let us see what the wrath of God looks like in living color. And my aim is I want you to feel the gravity of the wrath of God. Starting in chapter 5 of Revelation, chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Revelation 5, starting at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Right now we find ourselves looking from the vantage point of heaven. And the scroll that is being held in the hand of God represents the actually unfolding of God's end time plan. All of the judgments and all of the redemption that he has 
is written in that scroll. And you'll see John weeps. And the reason why John weeps is because if the scroll doesn't get opened, there is no redemption for the world. And so he weeps. And he's like, who can do it? Who's worthy to actually unravel all of this? And then it says in verse 4, and out, oh, that's the wrong one. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seals. And between the throne, the four living creatures and among the elders saw them standing as though they were slain with seven horns, eyes, so on and so forth. So who's the one that's worthy to open the scroll? Jesus. And this isn't meek and mild Jesus. I know we like that picture. No, he's the one actually netting out the wrath of God. Now we go to the one who is the worthy one. He now begins to open the scroll and breaking the seals in order to do it. So he starts with seal number one, starting in chapter six. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four creatures saying with a voice like thunder come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be the voice of the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth, everybody say a fourth, of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. The first four seals are the four horsemen. The church has been raptured. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 6, the Holy Spirit says the restrainer has been removed. What you see in the four horsemen is human depravity given over by God at full bent. You see, right now, the Spirit of God is holding the world together. The Spirit of God is not only holding us as believers together, but unbelievers as well. So you have to imagine the moment that the church is raptured, the Spirit of God and the restrainer in some ways is released, what do we have left? Human depravity. The white horse. It's all about conquest and power. Some think that's the Antichrist. Some believe that's just many kings and powerful individuals that are on a quest to actually demonstrate power and conquest in the world. The red horse. Notice he says to slaughter each other. The red horse is an example of, you guys seen that movie? I haven't seen it, but I, I heard about it. The Purge. You guys know about that movie, The Purge? It's where basically I think there's like a 12-hour period um, where the government allows for all crim- crime to just have no consequence. 12 hours, no consequence. Crime, you can do whatever you want to do. Murder, steal, thieve, whatever, whatever you want. 
Um, and what's interesting is, as I'm looking at that movie, The Purge, you know, movies a lot of times are really prophetic. You ever notice that? And I think a lot of times these movies come because we know deep down inside the reality of what is coming. I mean, I think I remember a cable guy. Y'all remember cable guy, 1996. I'm dating myself. There was a quote in Cable Guy. He says, soon every American home will integrate their television, phone, and computer. That was 1996. Now we have what? Smartphones. Social media. The movie Contagion in 2011 talked about a, a pandemic. We've lived it. COVID. Now we have the black horse. And the black horse, the black horse is holding scales. And the reason he's holding scales is because there's a shortage of food. Because of all the conquest that's happening in the world, because of the slaughter that's happening, there's basic civil war where people are just killing one another. As a result, there's going to be what? Food shortages. There's going to be crop failure. There's going to be war all over the place. That's the black horse. And then the last horse is, it says pale horse. It should be really sickly green horse. And the rider on top of that horse, his name is Death. And the god of death is Hades. And so just imagine what's followed by all of those different horsemen. The thing that's going to follow behind all of them is death. And it pictures the god Hades coming and picking up the corpses behind the horse of death. You see, each one of these horses represents human depravity. And each one of these leads one into the other. And the result that we see is in verse 8. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death and Hades. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth. Do you understand, just in the first four seals, 1.5 billion people are dead. A quarter. This is more than all the worlds of the last, all the wars of the last 200 years put together. And this is just four seals. And then we get finally to the fifth seal. In verse 9, the fifth seal is about the martyrs. I won't read it. Those who actually come to Christ during the tribulation. There will be tribulation saints. And they will be slaughtered. And you see them crying out in heaven before the throne of God. They're actually under the altar of God crying out for retribution. So now you have human depravity. But next, it moves from human depravity to cosmic with the sixth seal, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. Full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. Who's on the throne, y'all? And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You notice that the wrath of God is no respecter of persons. He says, the great, the generals, the rich, the powerful, verse 15, everyone, slave 
and free. That's why it's pointless to live for riches. That's why it's pointless to live for power. That's why it's pointless to live for your name. Because at the end of the day, it'll all be consumed by the wrath of God. The only name that will be above all names is his name. And your riches ain't going to save you. Your good works ain't going to save you. Your accomplishments ain't going to save you. You notice the rich and the powerful are running. All of their resources couldn't keep them from the wrath of God. And then, that's a lot, right? You feeling the weight of all that? That's a lot. And that's why verse 7 is Selah. Pause. Just pause. So now the writer just pause. And there's a pause in verse in chapter 7. Because this is the wrath of God on display. And then now he begins again in chapter 8. Chapter 8, starting at verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So the first four trumpets that we're going to see are actually similar to the Egyptian plagues. So now we'll see the first trumpet in verse 7. And remember how I told you that the the trumpets come out of the seals? That's what I meant by what you see in verses 1 and 2. That you see the seven trumpets were given to them after you see in verse verse 1 when the Lamb opened the seventh seal. So he opens up the seventh seal in verse 1, and then verse 2, the trumpets come out of that seal. Okay, so that's why I say they telescope. And so now we have a description now of the trumpets. And the trumpets begin in verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. This follows Sodom and Gomorrah, fire, sulfur. This follows the seventh plague of Exodus. The imagery that we see here that's coming from this first trumpet is one of fire that that, that is ascending down, that is mixed with blood. And there's billows of smoke that are rising, so much so that the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood. This is the great coming of the dreadful day of the Lord. Just imagine the Amazon gone. Just imagine Yosemite gone. Just imagine Yellowstone gone. The Congo gone. And notice the intensity has increased. At first it was one-fourth, and now it's what? One-third. Then the second trumpet in verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet in something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. It is clear what we're seeing here is we went from human depravity to now cosmic judgment. A meteorite, a falling star, something from the heavens, from the atmosphere, actually comes bolting down on the earth, and it hits the seas. Imagine what that will do to the ecosystem. Imagine what that will do to marine life. Imagine what that will do to trade. 
but it's not done. The third trumpet. Chapter 8, verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. Everybody say Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So now again, we have something else that comes out of the sky. The word wormwood means a bitter, it means bitter. It's, a, it's actually a shrub, and it's so intensely bitter. And so here it's symbolizing the fact that the water is going to be unable to be drank. How long can we go without water? Anybody tell me? Three days, four days, maybe five? What this is telling us here is in the third trumpet, the water will be poisoned. How long will people will be able to survive? But it's still not done. The fourth trumpet, verse 12. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still come. I'm sorry, wrong verse. The fourth angel, verse 12, blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now it's completely dark. It's just completely dark. Now, with all of the meteorites and everything else falling from the sky, I'm sure electricity is of no value right now. So imagine the lack of refrigeration, the lack of the ability to go to the store. How many of y'all went to Costco during the COVID? How many of y'all avoided Costco because of COVID? Right? Just the smell of a pandemic, all the shelves was cleared. Imagine what it's going to look like now. And what's interesting in verse 12, the fourth trumpet, he uses the word struck. Uses the word struck in verse 12. In the Greek, that's eplege. What does that sound like? Plague. God actually puts a plague on the sun. God puts a plague on the stars, and God puts a plague on the moon. This is Exodus times 10 million. Verse 13. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. They're like, dude, we still got three more. We've gone from human to cosmic. Now it gets demonic. The fifth trumpet, chapter 9 verses 1 through 12. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. Use your imagination. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key. And that star is talking about an angel, one of God's angels. And this angel was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun, the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. There's going to be people that have God's seal during the tribulation time because they've come to Jesus. 
they were allowed to torment them for five months. Everybody say five months. But not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion with its sting someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their head, where they, where they looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like woman's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and sting like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and the Greek Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. What is being described here is the bottomless pit. And it's a very narrow shaft that goes down. And this pit has no bottom. And down in that pit, right now as we speak, you know what's down in that pit? Locusts like demons. And they're locked away, set aside just for the day of tribulation. They are in right now the abyss. They are in the very pit of hell. And they will be unleashed to torture for five months. And there's a high-ranking demon right now in the bottomless pit. His name is Abaddon, Apollyon. You know what that means? Destruction. You know, we talk about the fact that the scriptures tell us we fight not against flesh and blood. The reality of that statement will be on full tilt during the tribulation. You don't believe in demons? You will then. And the thing is, we all know it. Our love for horror films and horror flicks, we know there's evil out there that is beyond this world. And then the sixth trumpet. Then the sixth trumpet, angel blew his trumpet, verse 13, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. He speaks of these onslaught of demons is what he's saying that there's four angels in the four corners god has them also bound and they're going to be released and they're going to release all of those the armies of all of those demons and put them in one concerted effort to come against all of humanity and destroy a third of humankind you know that time you woke up in a cold sweat from a terrifying nightmare about some bizarre creature or terrible accident that you just couldn't escape. You know how we all kind of have those dreams? And you wake up just relieved that it was just the tacos or the kimchi. But at some point in the future of this fallen world, that nightmarish reality is going to be devastatingly real. Your nightmares will be a reality. They are simply a foreshadow of what is to come. A bottomless pit filled with smoke, teeming with demons, 
pouring out of them as it targets all of earth's inhabitants. And in verses 17 through 19, it describes these demons as having reptile-like faces that blow smoke and sulfur, and they have power in their tails. It's as if they are like dragons. This is the just wrath of God against sin. And look at how the world responds in verse 20 of chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or thefts. How does the world respond? They don't repent. They're still looking to their gods. They're still looking to their accolades. They're still looking to their sexual cravings. They're still looking to their partners. They're still looking to their money. They're still looking to their things. They're looking to all of the things that can't see or hear to deliver them. And what's interesting is verse 21, the list, murders, sorceries, sexual immorality, thefts. Yep, even for stealing. We don't think stealing is such a bad thing. The wrath of God is clearly on stealing. Sexual immorality. But do you see what's in the text here? Do you understand all of the things that I just described is aimed at sin. And out of all of the ones that were named, one of them that he names is sexual morality. Some of you guys are having sex outside of marriage, and you think it's okay. You've been watching too many reality TV shows. You've been desensitized to believing and thinking that it's okay. Petting or any form of sexual interaction outside of marriage is sin, and the wrath of God is on it. And we have become desensitized. Don't you think the devil wants that? Because he wants as many people to go into the pit with him as he possibly can. And some of us are justifying it. And here he's saying the wrath of God is coming upon it. You stole something here or there. You're not so honest on your taxes. Uh, You know, a little fudge here, a little fudge there. You know what I'm saying? The government is corrupt anyway. Can't stand the IRS. These are the things that the wrath of God is coming against. And then it says sorceries. And again, I didn't look at that text, but I know sorceries in Galatians, when he talks about sorceries, that's talking about drugs. It's talking about being out of your mind. Oh, hasn't our culture just justified drug use? That's a lot, is it not? Well, the author says in chapter 10, Selah. Let's pause. Let's pause. And then in chapter 11, verse 5, chapter 11, verse 15, excuse me, we begin now into the trumpets, from the trumpets to the bowls. It says in verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. So you notice again, there's no seventh trumpet. There's nothing that comes from the seventh trumpet. Right? Why? Because just like with the seals, the bowls come out of the seventh trumpet. And there's a long selah all the way now from here all the way to chapter 15. And so we're going we're gonna to land this plane now as we get to chapter 15 to the bowls. Chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Then they begin in verse 16. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped this image. Now, I'm just going to read the rest of the bowls. For the sake of time, I'm just going to read. And I want you to hear the bowls. Just, just hear them. So the first angel went, verse 2, and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped the image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the river and the springs of water, and they all became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters, verse 5, say, Just are you, a holy one, who is and who was, for who brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar say, Yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. You notice he pauses right there, verses 5 through 7. He doesn't finish the bowls. Why? Because at this point, people are looking and saying, how can God do something like this to people? He's not that just. Are you serious? This is overboard. We don't deserve all of this. And so as if the, the, the angels pause and say, no, 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 I want you to remind y'all, everything that's coming is holy and just. You deserve every ounce of the wrath that you've experienced up to this point. Isn't that what people say today? I'm good. I mean, how could God send good people to what? Hell. I like how Ray Comfort, when he asks this question to an individual, do you think you're a good person? Most individuals say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Well, let's find out. If you're a good person, have you ever told a lie? Uh, yeah, I've, I've told a few of them. Okay, then who do you call somebody who tells a lie? They say, uh, a liar. Okay, have you ever stolen anything, regardless of its value? Well, you know, when I was a little boy, you know, I kind of stole a little candy bar, you know what I'm saying, out the liquor store. And Okay, well, then that means you stole something. Well, who do you call people who steal? A thief. Okay, Jesus said that anybody who looks upon a woman in lust has already committed adultery in his heart. Have you ever looked upon a woman in lust? Uh, well, yeah. Okay, well, then that means you're an adulterer. So now, have you ever used God's name in vain? Oh, uh, well, yeah, I've kind of done that before. Okay, so you've taken God's name in vain. Okay, so then that means by your admission that you're a lying, thieving, adulterous blasphemer. And when Jesus comes on judgment day, what are you going to say to him at that point? Nobody's good. Not one. And here's the reality. If we could see one another's thoughts, 
oh boy, we would see just how corrupt and dirty we are. No one's good. And so the angel pauses just to set the record straight. God is just. And then he finishes, beginning in verse 9 or verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits just like frogs. And then, verse 15, out of all of this, then Jesus speaks, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. Sores, plagues, destruction. This is the just and righteous wrath of God in living color. And those are the judgments. Maybe when you hear these, at least for me, sometimes when I listen to them, they sound a little fantastical. Kind of like something out of Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. But let me ask you a question. Do we believe as Christians fantastical things? Creation? God created an entire universe. Okay? Flood. Do we believe in the flood? Okay? Uh, Exodus. Ten plagues. Do we believe God did ten plagues? What about the Red Sea? Do y'all believe Red Sea? How about Goliath? Uh, we believe Goliath. What about a virgin birth? You still struggling? You still struggling with the reality of the things that we've read in Revelation? What about a resurrection? God said all of those things would happen, and they did. This is horrifying. And it is coming from the very mouth of the very God who is holy, just, and righteous. What he says so will be. This is the wrath of God in living color. The sea full of blood. Dang, that's crazy. Dragon-like demons running on earth, destroying humanity. (sighs) Horrific. So then the question becomes is, how are we to respond to this day that is coming? How are we to respond? Chapter 9, verse 20, they did not repent. Chapter 9, verse 21, nor did they repent. Chapter 16, verse 9, they did not repent and give him glory. Chapter 16, verse 10, they did not repent for their deeds. The way we are to respond to the wrath of God is to come is to repent. I'm serious. 
if this is true, if this is real, if every single one of these seals, trumpets, and bowls are going to come upon humanity, the only good, right, and wise response is to repent. See, many people here repent, they think it means to say, I'm sorry. They think repent means to say, I feel bad about sin. That's a part of it. But when Jesus says repent, you know what he's talking about. It's turning away not only from sin, but turning from the lies that sin deceives us with. It's turning to the truer and better lie of the true and better life that Jesus gives outside of the lies that the sin brings. You see, there is a belief that has you grumbling. There is a belief that has you bitter and angry. There is a belief that has you in sexual sin. There is a belief that has you discontent. There is a belief that has you belittling and bending truth. There is a belief that has you working to try to garner the favor of others. There's always a belief behind the sin. And repentance is the call to change what you believe and align it with what God says about you. And they did not do that. And the only wise response is to live in repentance because here's the issue. You should be afraid. I know people don't like preaching on this stuff. You know we don't care up in here. You should be afraid. You should be scared out of your mind. Young people, all the way to old, God is trying to scare the hell out of you now so you long for the heaven in you later. Let the picture of this tribulation wrath drive you to live a life of repentance. We should be living lives of repentance, saints, because do we need to grow in our belief? I know I do. I'm not fully repentant, but the blood covers me so I can try to walk in that by his grace daily. So fight daily with his grace to embrace what God believes over you. That's the first response. The second response is this, sit and soak in your wrath-deserving sin. Oh, that sounds encouraging. Sit and soak in your wrath-deserving sin enough so that you can see the brilliance and the glory of your great salvation. See, the pattern of the book of Revelation, as I gave it to you like this, is exactly telling you to do just that. What did I just have you do? Soak in the wrath of God. Chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. Wrath upon wrath upon wrath upon wrath. You see, we don't like to sit here. But it's against the backdrop of the wrath of the holy God that we can see the wonder and the beauty of a holy God in Jesus who gave us the gospel to free us from his wrath. You can't see how great your salvation is unless you see the backdrop of what you've been saved from. You will not value the rescue in the way that it will move you to live a life of repentance, live a life of belief, live a life of faith. If you don't sit in chapter 6, if you don't soak in chapter 8, if you don't put your head in chapter 15, if you don't rest in chapter 9, if you don't sit in chapter 16, 
the blood of Jesus absorbed chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 15, and chapter 16 when he hung on a cross. When you let that soak in, the beauty and the wonder of the gospel, it becomes just that, good news. It becomes not just salvation, but a great salvation. It just doesn't become treasure, it becomes the treasure. It becomes all that you have, you're willing to give up just so you can get that treasure. It becomes the pearl, but not just any pearl. It becomes the pearl of great price. It becomes a thing where it says, I don't care what you say, I will not bow my knee to Caesar. Because the God that I have in Christ is of far greater worth. When you see the wonder of the wrath, you see the beauty and the brilliance of the salvation. That's why we can sing when I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost, how he he brought me out of of, of the mire he claimed. It makes me want to shout, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, Lord, you're worthy of all the glory, all of the honor, and all of the praise. It's when I think about what the Lord has done for me in light of the fact that he has actually decided to put all of that wrath described in Revelation on his son. Who does that? He put it on his son so that he wouldn't have to put it on you. Come on, man. Who are you? Who am I? I live with me every day. See, it's when you sit and you soak in the wrath of God that it'll give you a shout. That it will align your priorities. That it will make you live for what is worth truly living for. All of this stuff is a waste of time, man. What are we living for, y'all? And lastly, lastly, What does Jesus have to say to us about all of these seals, bowls, and trumpets? Well, in chapter 16, verse 15, this is what he ends with. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. That's how he ends the judgments that are on the world that are to come. I'm coming like a thief. Stay awake. You got to be ready. You got to stay awake. So right now as you prepare your hearts for communion, I want to encourage you to do just that. There's some areas maybe in your life right now where you need to walk in repentance to change the way you believe. Look at your actions. Behind every sinful action is a belief that is disoriented away from God. Take some time now. What area do you find yourself falling in that you need to move in repentance? And I want you to just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit of God, please, will you change my belief? 
help my belief to turn. And secondarily, some of you just may need to soak in the brilliance of the wrath of God so you can feel the brilliance of the wonder of the cross. So just take a few moments, and when you're ready, we'll have the elements up here, if I can invite um, <clears throat> those up here to prepare for the elements. We'll have you, Pastor James. And when you're ready, you can come, grab one, and please take it back to your seat as we want to partake together. And if you don't know Lord Jesus today, if you could just refrain and allow this to be a testimony of the goodness of God in Christ that may cause for you to want to repent and come to Jesus as your Lord, Savior, and Treasure. Let's do that at this time. shall come with trumpet sound oh may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is 
chapter 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Yes, God, you are coming. And we thank you, Lord God, for the blood. Grant us the grace, Lord God, to see it in all of its wonder. That it might move us, Lord God, to live lives that are consistent with the brilliance and the beauty and the wonder of it. God, help us to live lives of repentance. And grant us the grace to soak in these realities and live in light of them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together. Sing the words of heaven holy.